All right. Well, if you have a uh, Bible, please open it to Psalm 24. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chairs around you. They are kind of red, burgundy, maroon color. Um, so we are not in John for now. Um, just really kind of been appreciating the Psalms. I didn't pick this psalm because it came next, as last week we did, 2023. Uh, but it was a psalm that I've been kind of looking at and coming back to. Uh, you know, sometimes that happens. Read something one day and your, your mind, your heart's just kind of drawn back to it. Um, so it's just, we're going to look at Psalm 24 today. And as, you, um, as we go through this text, I just want to encourage you to have this question in the back of your mind, just kind of ruminating in your mind. Who can approach our God? Who is it that is able to approach this God? Just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we consider this text. But let me read Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord God, we do come before you now and we recognize that this is your uh, holy word. It is a word that you have inspired. You have It is literally breathed out by God. It is also a word that you have preserved for us through the ages. It is a word that comes to us, and it is a word that is alive. It's not just simply ink on a page, but it is your living word that is able to cut and divide the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It, it digs between, uh, between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. So we ask, Lord God, that now in this place that you might work, that you, might, that you might convict, challenge, encourage, have your way with us through your word. I pray that you would keep me from any error, any falsehood. I pray that Christ would be exalted, lifted up today in this message. We thank you that we are here. Thank you that we can gather. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us. Thank you that we can know you, that we can know the only true God, that you would be mindful of people like us. And we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a psalm of David, and David kind of comes out of the gate swinging. He doesn't really pull any punches. He, he, he begins with this bold kind of proclamation or confession that God is the ultimate, absolute, supreme, sovereign authority of heaven and earth. I like the, I don't use much the CSB. It's a pretty new translation. It's an updated version of the HCSB but I like this rendering here. It says the earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Abraham Kuyper once said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. This teaching, the, the, the ultimate supreme sovereignty of God is a teaching that sets Christianity apart from many other religions in the world, and, and of course, from any sort of atheistic or agnostic worldview. This teaching that there is a single supreme ruler over everything in the cosmos, that he is the ultimate total authority. And what that means is that dictators and emperors and um, princes and kings and chiefs and presidents 
are simply servants to this God. He does all that he wills. He has all authority and he has all ability to bring his will to pass. I want to read you this quote from A.W. Pink. He, he speaks of the sovereignty of God. He says, God is infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. His own word declares, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. And I love this quote. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact as well as name. That he is on the throne of the universe directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. This God lays claim to every square inch of this earth and to every creature that inhabits this earth. There is no will that is above his. There is no plan that can thwart his. There is no rule that is beyond his, no authority that trumps his, and no throne that sits higher than his. He alone is God. This is not a doctrine for us to despise, right? But it is a source of great comfort and great peace for the Christian. Because while God is the supreme sovereign authority over all things, at the same time, He is our Father. Right? And as a father, as a good father, as a perfect father, He cares for His sheep. He cares for His people. He nurtures His flock. He looks after us. He knows us and He has the ability to do all that he pleases in our lives. This is a doctrine that is, that is dear to the church. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty can overrule their afflictions, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hand, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. This is a doctrine that is loved by the church, but so often this is a doctrine that is hated by the world. Spurgeon goes on, he says, on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by the world, nor, nor truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. He says, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They'll allow him to be in his workshop, to fashion worlds and to make stars. They'll allow him to be in his omnery, to dispense alms and bestow his bounties they allow him to sustain the earth, bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, the creature, his creatures gnash their teeth. But he says, we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, 
without consulting them in the matter. Then it is when we proclaim this that we are hissed and hated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is the God they do not love. But it is God upon a throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne in whom we trust. I'm just going to start reading Spurgeon all day. This church will explode, right? (laughs) Yes, we love the sovereignty of God because it means that the God that loves us, the God that saved us, the God that is watching over us is in control. He's not just an, uh, 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 a weak God that is frail, that is unable to act. But we know and we can trust that everything that comes to us comes through the sovereign hands of an all-wise loving God. That means that we can trust, beloved. It means that we can trust the past. The things that have happened in our life are not mere happenstance, but they have come through God's sovereign providence. We can trust today. Whatever you're going through right now, we can trust that this God continually is in control. And we can trust tomorrow that God will continue to be on His throne, accomplishing His will at all times. But why is it then that this God can lay claim to this universe? Why does he, What gives Him the right to have authority over every creature across the globe? Well, David continues in verse 2 of Psalm 24, speaking of the world, he says, He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Not only is God the sovereign ruler, but he is the sovereign creator. He spoke and it came to pass. And when he spoke, when he created, he did so ex nihilo, which means he created out of nothing. There was no earth and then there was the earth. Man was not and then man was. He is the reason that the land was formed as the water subsided. He is the reason right now that the waves don't crash the coastlands and consume the dry land. He is the reason that the sun is the perfect distance from the earth so that we don't burn up or freeze. He is the reason that gravity is not too strong lest we would be crushed or we might or or too weak that we would float around like helium balloons. He is the reason that plants emit the oxygen that we need to live and that we emit CO2 that plants need to live. He is the sovereign orchestrator and creator of all things. And because that, he holds the title deed to creation. As Kuiper said, all of the creation Jesus claims as mine. And as we consider God in this way, as we consider this ultimate authoritative creator, all-sovereign God, we're confronted now with a question. Now, if we think of God in small terms, if you think that God is kind of just, he, he's like me, but he's really powerful and wise. You know, he's, he's like a better man. He's, a, he's like a superhero. You know, he's kind of like a person, but he does, he has more power and more ability. If we have a, a puny view of God like that, then this question is not going to be that challenging. But if we have a biblical, robust understanding of who God is, then this question should cause us to pause. And this question is asked in the context of David's words that the earth is the Lord's, that all who dwell in the earth are his. And then he asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who is it that can approach this God? Who is it that is able to walk, to stand, to come into the presence of the sovereign God? How can any man, how can any creature approach this God? 
You see in that verse, in that question, there is a picture there of a mountain. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And we see in the Bible that mountains are significant. There's a lot of mountains that have a significant role in the scriptures. We think of Mount Moriah, which is the mountain that Abraham took Isaac up to to sacrifice his son. And God there provided that substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac didn't have to die. Mount Calvary, many believe those are the same mountain. Of course, is where Jesus went, where he was crucified. The Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus unveiled his face and Peter, James, and John beheld his glory. There's many mountains in the scripture, but there are two that I want to focus on that are very significant in the Bible. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And these two mountains are contrasted with one another. So firstly, Sinai. Think of the hill of the Lord. Uh, Turn it with me, if you would, to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, the Lord has told Moses to prepare the people to come up on Mount Sinai, that God is going to be there, and he wants the people to come up into his presence. Exodus 19. I'm going to start in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Interesting. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then jump down a bit to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Quite the awesome, I know we use that word kind of flippantly, but quite the awesome scene to behold. And of course, Moses goes up on the mountain And God gives him the law. He gives him the Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20. And if you would go to the next chapter, Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Quite the amazing scene here. And God had said, if the people come too close before I have called them, if they touch the mountain, 
or approach the mountain too early, they will die. If the livestock gets too close to the mountain and simply brushes up on the mountain while God is there, they will die. Think about what, what, what Sinai is known for then. It's known for fear and trembling. It's known for lightning and thunder, the fear of death if you do anything wrong. It's known for the law. Right? This is where God gave the law the first time. Sinai is often synonymous with the law. So when we think of Sinai, we think of this awesome display of God's power and glory. So much so. You know, we might, we might today in our flippant kind of mindset, if, if a prophet like Moses would come and say, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go see the Lord. We're going to, we're going to have an, an encounter with the living God. We might, we might run and not even think about it. I would love to see God. They just heard his voice and they said, you go, tell us what he said. <laughs> I'm not going up there, right? This God is awesome. And, and when you think about God in this way, I mean, maybe we might need a, a healthy dose of this understanding of God in America today, right? In the church today. I know oftentimes in public encounters when we're out there, uh, one of the things that people like to do is they like to just come up with the most blasphemous, terrible things that they could ever say about Christ to really just get at you, right? That's one of the, I don't know why, but that's what a lot of young people like to do when we're on the street. And, and I would not repeat anything they say, but they would just think of the most immoral, blasphemous things they could utter about the name of Christ and try to just get at you with those things. And I, when they do that, Man, I think of God in this way, that if they just had a smidgen of the presence of this God, they would be on their face trembling. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I think we would do well to have a sense of this reverence and awe for the Lord. That is Sinai. And that is what Israel experienced when, when God drew near. And I want to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And here the author, it's, Almost one of the last books of your Bible towards Revelation. Um, here the author contrasts Sinai with Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll begin in verse 18. For you have not come... 1218, to what may be touched. He's speaking about Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with Fear. So the, the author to the Hebrews here is, is reminding, he's, he's refreshing us on what happened at Sinai. But now, he says in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see that Sinai was associated with fear and trembling. This mountain, Mount Zion, is associated with festal gathering. The righteous are made perfect. And this 
covenant is mediated by a better mediator, that of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. As you read the scriptures, you'll see often Zion is simply a reference to the city of Jerusalem. And the reason for that is because at one point there was a Jebusite fortress on that mountain, on that hill. And in 2 Samuel, uh, the Jebusites were, were a Canaanite tribe. And in 2 Samuel, it says that David captured the fortress of Zion. He overtook that fortress and he built his palace there and he began to make plans to build the temple on Mount Zion. So its name stuck from, from what it was in the past. But over time, this name of Zion has become synonymous in the scriptures with the presence of God. To go to Mount Zion is to go to the Lord. I mean, consider in the Old Covenant, to go to the temple was to draw near to God. And to draw near to God meant that you would go to the temple. These two things were synonymous with one another. So we see this stark contrast between Sinai and Zion. But, you know, often we, we say things, uh, hear people say things like, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so different than the God of the New. You know, he was full of wrath and the God of the New Testament, he's, he's, he's kind and he's loving. But God never changes. God has not changed. Yes, he is dealing with his people today in a covenant of grace. But just as an aside, look down the page at uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Just got done speaking about Mount Zion, about Christ, how this is far better than the old way. But it says in 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, this is the New Testament God. This is this is be, he's speaking of God in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of grace. But God has not changed. So again, whether it's whether it's Sinai or Zion, the question remains, what man is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is it that can enter into the presence, the sovereign presence of God Almighty? Uh, David continues, if you want to jump back to Psalm 24 in verse 4. He says, it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who is it that can approach the holy God? It is firstly one that has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, just by reminder, you, you know this already, but we have spoken of God's sovereignty, his supreme and absolute authority over everything, but he is also holy. The only characteristic of God that is that is repeated three times, is that he is holy, holy, holy. And I like how Steve Lawson explains that. You know, when we repeat things, we're just saying the same thing. But in Hebrew, when they repeat things, it's a way of escalation. And you might say that God is holy, holier, holiest. In Habakkuk, we read that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot even look at wrong. We read in Psalm 34 that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This God is holy. He is without sin. So it says, firstly, to approach this God, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. 
You see there's two sides here. There is an inward piety or holiness and an outward piety or holiness. And I would say that if both are not there, then neither of them are truly there. A clean hands represents the, outs- the, the outward life, the things that we do, the things that we enjoy, the things that we partake of. And the question may be asked, as James, at, James asks, does he keep himself unstained from the world? Right? That's the call for the believer. Or as Paul said it, and we looked at this verse on Wednesday night, is his manner of life worthy of the gospel? Is his manner of life worthy of the gospel? We see in Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Or Ephesians 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. We see a call to holiness for the church really all throughout the Scriptures. He says plainly, Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord God. Now the Pharisees, they had clean hands, right? They were good at washing their hands, at keeping externals clean. Jesus said, you know, you, you, you wash the outside of, of the cup. You know, these things are, are cool, but they can be a, a challenge to clean. You know, and if you put milk and coffee and water and juice and just kind of fill it back up, you know, is it half full? And really scrub the outside and make it look all pretty. But inside there's curdled milk and other nasty stuff that no one really wants to drink. And you're just drinking away, right? It's going to be kind of gross. You're going to be sick. And his point was, you wash the outside of the cup, you make it look really nice, but inside it's defiled. You're, you're like a, a tomb. You know, we've all seen in a cemetery, sometimes, where I don't know why, maybe the person had money, there's this big, huge tomb, it looks like a small house, right? just has gargoyles on it and really expensive and ornate. But we all know what's inside. As nice as you can pretty up the outside, inside, as he says, is simply dead man's bones. But the psalmist says to approach this God, a person must have clean hands and a pure heart. Must have both. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of helps us to understand. He, he breaks down the, some of the errors that the Pharisees had. Now, some would say that Jesus he took the law to another level. I don't think that's the case. I think he was just trying to explain to us how to really keep the law, what it really meant. It was never just about externals. He says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. You're guilty of murder if you've committed murder in your heart, if you've hated your brother in your heart. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You cannot burn with lust and have immoral thoughts and motives in your, in your mind, but not go through the act and think, well, I'm, I'm pure before the Lord. Psalmist says a person must have clean hands and a pure heart. Spurgeon said it like this, there must be a work of grace in the core of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand, or our religion is a delusion. Our religion is a delusion. He goes on and he says that this person does not lift up his soul to what is false. I think the King James there says, does not lift up his soul to vanity. The silly things of this world. He gets excited about 
he, he, he strives for, again, Spurgeon, all men have their joys by which their souls are lifted up. The worldling lift up his soul in carnal delights, which are empty vanities, but the saint loves more substantial things. The saint lifts up his soul to things that are eternal, to things that are spiritual, to things that have lasting implications. So I ask you, church, do you have clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? You may be tempted to say, hey, I'm not as bad as some, right? I'm not like whoever we like to point at. Those people, those criminals, I pay my taxes. I am an upstanding member of society. But our hands are dirty and our hearts are impure and our clothing is stained. And left on our own, we are unable to get anywhere near this sovereign, holy God. His nature is perfect. His courts are pure and undefiled and there's no sin in His presence. There is only one man, there is only one person that is able on His own to ascend this holy hill. There is only one person that is worthy to stand in the presence of God on his own because he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Of course, it is Christ that is able to ascend this holy hill. It is Christ that is worthy to stand in the presence of this holy, sovereign God. The author to the Hebrews speaks of Christ as our perfect, better high priest. And he says that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The only man that is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, or not Paul, excuse me, David, Psalm 24 uh, in verse 5, and he, and he says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. And that's just a pause, meditate, think about that. But think about this, church, Christian Believer, you have been given access to God by virtue of the merit of Christ. You now can ascend Mount Zion on your own through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear there in that, in that verse, verse 5, there is a blessing that comes from the Lord. And that blessing is righteousness. That blessing is His righteousness. Let's be clear, let's not think, that the psalmist is saying that if I have clean hands and a pure heart, that if I have some sort of righteousness in myself on my own, that I can ascend the holy hill of the Lord. But this righteousness that we are blessed with is a righteousness, as Luther said, that is alien to us. It comes externally from outside of us. None of us has a perfect righteousness on our own to approach this God, but it's a blessing from the Lord. Now, I want to, I think to help this make sense, now don't, don't stone me, but I'm going to read this text backwards. And you may say, well, what are, you, what are you trying to say? God got it wrong? No, God didn't get it wrong. But I think for us to understand how it is that we might ascend 
the hill of the Lord, it is helpful to read this little section backwards. So firstly, we must seek the face of the God of Jacob. Oh, thank you. We must seek the face of the God of Jacob. Of Jacob. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when a person earnestly seeks the face of the God of Jacob, they receive a blessing from that God. And what is that blessing? We read here, it is His righteousness. It is His righteousness that will come from the God of your salvation. And if you seek the face of the God of Jacob, He will become the God of your salvation. And then you will have clean hands and a pure heart, and then you can ascend that holy hill to Mount Zion, where there is festal gatherings and souls being perfected. But I want to say today to anyone that might be here that has come today to this church finding a sense of security or trusting in any of the things that you yourself have done. Maybe your life used to be a disaster and you've really cleaned it up. You've got it back on track. You've, you've worked really hard. You've, you've turned away from whatever stuff might have been destructive in your past. Maybe you've worked your tail off to become a better husband. A better, a better wife, a better mother, a better father, a better son, a better daughter. Maybe you've started going to church. You've consistently been going to church for the first time in your life. Maybe you're reading the scriptures. Maybe you consider yourself, you know, a good person, a good upstanding moral person. You try to keep the golden rule. You don't steal. Maybe you're trusting in your religious activity. All of those years you've been faithfully attending church, all of the money that you've financially given to the work of the ministry. But friend, if you've come to this church today and you are trusting in any of those things, then you may very well be outside of Christ. Now don't get me wrong, all of those things are good, but all of those come, Lord willing, as fruit of a true and saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But none of them, none of those righteous deeds will get us an inch up Mount Zion without the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christ is worthy to ascend that hill and only Christ is able to stand in His holy place. And the only way that us type sinners can gain access to God is on the back of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like he carried that cross up Golgotha, he carries his people up that mountain. He paves the way that we might approach this holy God. So I ask you, do you know this Christ? Not are you doing those things, but are you today trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save you? Do you see your sin today as wretched and vile? Do you, excuse me, do you understand that because of your sin you are only due wrath and condemnation from God? Do you understand that it is only in and through Christ that you will ever ascend this mountain and have access to the Lord? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone to save? Because only Christ is worthy. And only those that know Him can come near to God. Seek the face of the God of Jacob. And the blessing that you will receive is the righteousness of the Lord our God. And you will have clean hands and a pure heart. 
Now, things really get interesting here. You thought I was done. <laughs> things really get interesting here in verse 7. And I want to read. I'm going to, I'm going to, read, the, I'm going to read the rest of the psalm. Uh, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, we haven't spoken at all yet about what in the heck might be going on in this psalm. What is the historical background? What is taking place here? Now, some people believe that what is happening, I mean, certainly something happened in David's life when he wrote this. Many believe that this is a situation where the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Covenant was that chest sort of thing. It, it, it resided in the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was the mercy seat. It was where the high priest would go once a year to make atonement for the sins of Israel. It was where God's presence was manifest most strongly on this earth. It was said to be the very footstool of God. And there was a time when the ark had been lost. I believe the Philistines had it. And in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 13, David is, the ark has been recovered. And, and, and David is dancing and singing and celebrating as he sometimes would. Uh, David, I think, was the very first charismatic. But David was dancing and celebrating and the Israel now is already kind of in disobedience because there was a specific way that they were to carry the ark. There was rings on the sides and it had poles that would go through and they were supposed to carry it at all times. But, you know, life is difficult and walks are long and things are probably heavy. So they put on a cart and they're pulling the cart and the ark or the cart begins to tip and the ark begins to slip. And maybe you know what happens here. You know, there's a man, and, and probably in his mind, he's thinking, I don't want the ark of God to be defiled. If it falls on the earth and hits the ground, it's going to be defiled. So what does he do? He reaches out his hand. What happens next? He drops dead right there on the spot. He was mistaken to think that, that, his, that his hands were cleaner than the earth. His name was Uzzah. And he passes. Now, that may be the occasion if the story stops there, because the happiness in singing, it ends right there at that point. David, it says, he's upset. He was angry at the Lord because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. And then David was fearful. He said, I'm not bringing, how can I bring this thing to my house? How can I have this ark in my home? A man barely touched it and he just lost his life. I think there's more going on here than simply the ark returning to Jerusalem. One of the reasons that I think that is because if you look at verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Now, gates are being personified. It happens a lot in the Bible. We see wisdom is spoken of uh, as a woman, she. Um, but it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. And I believe the King James actually says, Everlasting doors or eternal doors. What are these doors? What are these gates that are being lifted up? I believe that these are actually the gates of heaven. This is the entrance of heaven, and we are, are, are speaking here of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus was born of the virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose again, and then he ascended back 
to heaven. We read that in Acts chapter 1. As they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then there was two men there standing in white robes, and they said, Why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So clearly Jesus ascended back to heaven. Now, I want to imagine the scene for a moment. We don't have this clearly laid out in Scripture. But imagine the scene. Jesus Christ was just recently crucified, died, rose victoriously again. He is seen by his disciples and more than 500 other men. And then he ascends back to heaven. The victorious Son of Man accomplished all that he was sent to accomplish. And this cry goes out as he ascends back to heaven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then you can picture these sentinels or what have you at the, at the heavenly gates. Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, says Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Jesus came to the earth, this earth on a mission, did he not? He, he came to this earth to do battle. And he was mighty in battle. He was victorious in battle. He, he of course, defeated Satan in the wilderness after he was tempted for 40 days. He lived perfectly according to every single commandment of the law of God. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave. He defeated death. He was tempted in every way that we are but without sin. He endured the righteous wrath of His Father and made atonement for the sin of His people. He died and rose in victory and He ascended back to heaven and the King of glory has entered those ancient gates, exalted and sits at the right hand of His Father. Hallelujah. And I'm going to say something here. Again, don't stone me. Listen to my words. Jesus, as the God-man, Jesus, as the God-man, attained something here that he previously did not have. He achieved a status in his exaltation that he did not previously have. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is praiseworthy, full of glory, lacks nothing, was never created, has always existed as God. But... At the incarnation, he assumes a human nature. He becomes no longer just divine, but he is now fully human and fully God. And as the God-man, as the God-man, he is exalted to a status that he did not previously have on this earth. Peter speaks of this exaltation in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 32. He said, this Jesus God raised up and of all that, we are witnesses being, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God. The author to the Hebrews, in that great first opening verses, he says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, it would be blasphemous to say that God became superior to angels. Of course, God is always superior to every creature that has ever existed. 
But the author of the Hebrew says here that as he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, he became superior to angels because he was exalted at the right hand of his father. And then, of course, Philippians 2, the Carmen Christi, which we believe is one of the first hymns of the church. Speaking of Christ, that he was found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus enters into those ancient gates and we can hear the song of Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and he sits down at the right hand of his father. And it's a demonstration that the work of redemption has been accomplished. Just like if you were to do some monumental task and finally be done and you sit down and rest after that great work was done, Jesus ascends back to heaven. He opens up those heavenly gates. The King of glory comes in. The host of heaven rejoice and He sits and rests by His Father. Who is it, beloved? Who is it? that can ascend this holy hill of the Lord? Who is it that can stand in His holy presence? Who is it that has clean hands and a pure heart? Who is it that never lifted up His soul to what is false? Who is it that did not swear deceitfully? Who is it that perfectly always sought the face of the God of Jacob? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your Savior, your Redeemer, your Lord. How is it then that we can approach God? It is through our forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ. He paved the way that we might follow in His footsteps. He triumphantly climbed Mount Zion so that all that trust in Him may follow Him and He has entered into glory. And what that means, that Christian, you too one day will follow Him and enter into glory. That by virtue of all that He accomplished, all that He has done that we could never do, we will one day stand in the very presence of God at Mount Zion. So beloved, Christian believer, look to this Christ. In your sorrow, in your pain, look to this Christ. In your loneliness, in your exhaustion, in your exasperation, look to the glory and majesty of this Christ. In your joy, in your sleepless nights, in your anxiety, look to Him who did all that you could never do. Look to Him who paved the way so that you might stand in His holy presence on top of Mount Zion as your soul is perfected in festal gatherings with the blood of Christ that is better than the blood of Abel. Look to this Christ. Amen? Lord Jesus, we do look to You, our risen Sovereign Savior. Lord, we are so unworthy to bask in Your presence. We are so unworthy to know You, Lord. But in Your grace, You condescended. You, you became like us. You became as a man and took upon weakness. You lived amongst the people that reviled You, that hated You, that did not care about why You might come to save them. But You continued on that path 
You gave your life. You bore our guilt. You took our shame. And you are now gloriously seated at the right hand of your Father, interceding on our behalf. And Lord God, we look to you. We thank you for the many blessings that we have in Christ. Innumerable blessings that we take for granted day in and day out. Lord God, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you would minister to us today. We thank you for your word. Please bless it to the good of our souls, I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.